another pot of coffee is brewing and I have just finished my third cup despite the fact that as I record this it is only just gone seven in the morning perhaps it's time to start switching to decaf in the afternoons so I can get a decent night's sleep but that stuff just doesn't taste the same all that means is that it's time for the first book episode of Not Before Coffee for 2022. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled if you're listening to this in the evening and let's get started. This week I am going to be talking about my first completed read of the year, a book I picked up towards the end of 2021 and I knew that I wanted to make it an early 2022 read, I just wasn't sure when. The book I have selected and actually finished very quickly into the new year is On a Night Like This by Lindsay Kelk. It's the 17th contemporary romance by Kelk and admittedly the first one I have read by her. So it was not only my first book of the year, but it also met my personal challenge requirements, that of being a book by a new author to me. The main reason that I picked up this book in the first place was that just a few months ago, I joined Lindsay Kelk's reading group on Facebook and having seen the cover multiple times, and I mean uh, a lot of times through the feed and a lot of people posting how they had it on their reading list or had just finished it, I was inspired and a little bit curious. So... On the New Year's Day bank holiday, I made a flask of coffee so I didn't have to keep on getting up, sat down, switched on the Kindle, which has been admittedly burning the midnight oil for the last couple of weeks as I made a last minute sprint for the 2021 reading challenge finish line and started reading. What I found when I read on a night like this was a book that sucked me in, made me care about and in some cases identify with the characters as it took me on a tour of places in Europe that I hadn't ever been. Not sure if I actually want to go to any of them, though some of them sound quite picturesque. If I am being completely honest, when I first picked the book up, all I could think of was the song by Kylie of the same name. And listening to the words of that song now, I can see a few ways that it could be the perfect companion to at least parts of the book. Definitely not the video, though. That is totally unconnected. Within days of wishing she could change her life, Fran Cooper is acting assistant to a celebrity on a yacht in the Mediterranean and en route to a tiny Italian island and the glittering crystal ball, along with the world's rich and famous. When she quite literally bumps into a handsome American called Evan a man able to keep his cool in the face of chaos, the magic really begins. Evan makes her a promise, no last names, no life stories, just one unforgettable night. Yet Evan belongs at the crystal ball, and Fran is a gatecrasher. They may be soulmates, but their homes are an ocean apart, and their lives a world apart. They'll never meet again, 
unless on a night like this, everything can change forever. At one point in her life, Fran Cooper was happy and fulfilled. She worked as an executive assistant in high-powered big businesses and she thrived. However, when her long-term boyfriend Stu's grandmother died, leaving him her two-up, two-down in Sheffield, things changed. But she is happy because she's in love with Stu and she enjoys the frequent job changes she is afforded by her temporary contracts as an assistant. Of course, there is always a fly in the ointment when it comes to anything that looks as though it's going incredibly smoothly. And that fly happens to be Stu's ex-girlfriend, Bryony, who is always there, even though Fran and Stu have been together for over a decade. She's the hometown girl who runs the local hair salon and is always calling upon Stu to help her out with little chores. And he's always willing to do them. When Fran is offered a short-term contract in London by one of the temping agencies that give her work, she is initially doubtful, but then curiosity settles in before she can find out more about the role she's asked to sign an NDA. Because whoever needs an assistant at such short notice is of the moneyed set. Within moments of signing the agreement, she's offered an interview the next day. It seems that her experience working in London and on a boat, and for various other demanding employers, has held her in good stead. It seems like things are getting back on track, but when Fran tries to speak with Stu, he's less than receptive. He tells her that she has made a commitment to training to be a teacher, something his domineering mother suggested and something that she herself is less than keen on. And he doesn't want to talk about London. Heading to bed, he tells her they'll talk the next day, although she has to leave the following morning. So it's obvious her decisions have no bearing on anything he wants. And because of that, he's not interested. I said that things don't run smoothly and Stu continues to prove, at least to my mind, that Fran's feelings are unimportant in the scheme of things when he leaves before they have a chance to talk. Not wanting to miss out on the opportunity, understandably, Fran gets the train down to London and starts a process that will have more of an impact on her life than she could have ever anticipated. One interview and a few critiques of her wardrobe later. Seriously, they'd look at my wardrobe and have an absolute field day. It's literally leggings, long t-shirts and long jumpers. Oh, and absolutely stacks of loungewear. Fran is on her way to Italy, where she is to meet her new client, the global pop star, Juliet. Her responsibility is to ensure that the singer gets to the Crystal Ball, a huge charity event where Juliet is the headline act. After arriving in Italy, Fran finds herself a passenger on a luxury yacht, the Songbird, and it's there she meets her boss for the first time. Juliet's a bit of a name dropper, though she admittedly has earned her right to be, but she also has a mood that flips quicker than a pancake, a drinking problem, and a level of entitlement that has her employees saying things like, She's just like every other guest on this yacht, a rich user and a nasty piece of work. I don't trust her and neither should you. Oh, wiser words were never spoken. After seemingly bonding with her new boss over drinks, talk of relationships and a very drunken game of truth or dare that appears to have Fran on the back foot, doing more things that make her look foolish, including dyeing her hair pink and calling Stu 
who is less than impressed with her antics and is actually with his ex-girlfriend when he answers the phone. The next day, everything changes and it seems as though a switch has been flipped. The yacht has finally docked in Panaria, their final destination and the location of the ball. And Juliet, obviously nursing a hangover, though no less than the one that Fran has got, is a queen bitch, demanding a drink that they don't have on board, which leads to Fran heading off to get it from a dockside shop. A series of events, including burst fizzy drink cans, sticky clothes, slipping over and causing a fair amount of damage to the shop, lead to a somewhat anonymous meet-cute before Fran abandons the small shop that is a disaster area with her few cans of San Pellegrino orange for Juliet and discovers that not only is Lenny, the songbird steward, nowhere to be seen, but the yacht is also gone. 41% of the way through the book, at least according to my Kindle, and everything in Fran's life has suddenly turned into a disaster. But I get the feeling it is actually going to change for the good, because it's a contemporary romance. It has to have a happy ending. It really has to. As with everything book, I am not going to spoil the ending, because it's wonderfully written and really an enjoyable read. However, I am going to tell you everything that happens from this point onwards makes it something of a Cinderella style story reflecting the very dreamlike quality of the UK cover. Though Fran is stuck in Panaria courtesy of Juliet's change of heart or rather a spoilt princess temper tantrum things start to work out for the better. It's very much you will go to the ball Francesca. That actually flows quite well. You will go to the ball Cinderella. Yeah. Yeah, I think it works. One thing that this book does make sure to highlight is that the rich are no different from anyone else, even the super rich. They thrive on gossip, on being nice or nasty. There are people there that are desperate to meet others and impress. And Fran discovers that Juliet is the topic of many people's speculation. Her reasons for running off without performing, according to the wealthy gossips, varied from wanting more money to heading to rehab again. So obviously she has a history of unreliability. Courtesy of a fairy godmother in the form of makeup artist and hairstylist Rachel, yay, my name, and it's spelt correctly, is in the book, Fran will go to the ball, even though she was persuaded to dye her hair pink and arrived at the exclusive hilltop hotel wearing very little while covered in sticky San Pellegrino. No, I am not being sponsored. And this is where the title of the book and the byline, It Only Takes One Night to Fall in Love, come into play big time. As this is the night when she actually meets Evan. They have fun, get to know a lot about each other. But beneath it all, Fran is focused on the fact that she doesn't belong at the ball. She's not like everyone else. She sneaked in and is constantly aware that someone might call her out as a usurper and she could be escorted off the premises at any time. And of course, at the back of her mind is the fact that she could have royally screwed up her relationship with Stu, dependable, boring Stu, who wants her to train to be a teacher, who spends too much time with his ex-girlfriend and who cheated on her and it 
blamed it on her career-minded ways. So yes, there's that. As with any Cinderella story, the bell has to strike midnight and she has to escape, leaving Prince Charming with a mystery to solve. But in this case, there is no lost glass slipper. And that's where spoilers would seriously come into play. So I'm going to halt the recap with this. Go and buy yourself a copy of the book and read it to find out what happens. Honestly, it's really well written. So now you know some of what happens, I'm going to take a look at the characters because really they are what the book is all about. Fran Cooper could be anyone or everyone. At some point or other in your life, I know in mine, you will have felt the way she's feeling. She's happy with the way that her life is going. She enjoys the frequent environment changes that she gets courtesy of her job. She's happy in her relationship with Stu, though occasionally there is a glimpse of a wish for something more. The fact that sometimes she is less than content with elements of her relationship is clear, however, though a lot of this can be attributed to the lack of closeness she has with his family, while lacking very much in the way of family herself. There were quite a few things that I really liked about Fran. One was her get up and go, despite the fact that it took someone pointing out the sorry state of her relationship with Stu. She knows that things need to change in her life. She just needs to figure out a way to make them happen without hurting herself or anyone else in the process. Though our lives are incredibly different and this heroine is so much younger than me, I could see a lot of her in the person I was at 32 unsure of my direction and wishing for the answer to just appear, despite a surprise job landing in her plate that whisks her off to exotic locations and into the arms of a handsome stranger, the answers are no easier to come by than they would be for anyone else. She isn't someone who wants to take the easy way out. Fran is the sort of person you know you could rely on, but she probably trusts just a little bit too easily. It's obvious that she wants to be everyone's friend and in the case of Juliet, that isn't something that works in her advantage. Juliet is the stereotypical spoilt princess. The book mentions Brittany a couple of times and I was strangely hoping that she would be the star Juliet was modelled on. Someone with simple wants who was pushed into the limelight at a young age and went through a lot to get where she is. Juliet is none of these things. She's demanding, mean and a user, though at the same time she is hiding a wealth of hurt beneath the surface. Hurt that we don't get to see the reason for until the book is almost finished. For all that she uses her fame to get what she wants and does a very good job at manipulating Fran into believing that they are friends when they are boss and subordinate, she has been hurt and a great deal of her anger and frustration is this coming to the fore, though it is definitely taken out on the wrong people. That having been said, Juliet doesn't inspire all that much in the way of sympathy from me. I really wish it did, and initially I was sitting there going, oh, I feel quite sorry for her, and then things turned, and it was like, no, no, I don't. Possibly this is because I cannot identify with her, and more than likely because a lot of her actions have consequences that she never apologises for. Stu is a large presence in the book, despite barely being in it. 
He is Fran's fiancé. He is a man who knows who he is and what he wants out of life. At the same time, he seems to know what he wants for Fran without taking her wants or needs into account. Though we already know that Fran loves him and considers him in every decision she makes, we don't meet him properly until she has already been offered an interview for a lucrative but short-term, and that's the important thing, temping role. He doesn't want to listen to her and makes the excuse that he's too tired to talk. The fact that he won't give her a few moments of his time, instead telling her that his sister and mum are arranging her future for her, is very revealing about the sort of relationship they have. He's the one who thinks he should be in charge. I tried to give Stu the benefit of the doubt, I really did. But the more I found out about him and his behaviour, the less I wanted Fran to ever go back to him. In fact, I wanted her to mail him the ring. But the Fran on these pages would never do that. She's too nice and she cares about him and doesn't want to hurt him. So, who is Stu? He is a man who spends a lot of time with his ex-girlfriend. He is a man who cheated on his girlfriend and blamed her for his actions. He's someone who doesn't want to listen to the woman he claims to love when she has something to say. And he's someone who has his fiancé's entire life planned out for her, disregarding her wishes and desires. Sounds like the perfect hero, right? Good job this song isn't about him. In every romance novel, whether it's historical, contemporary or a rom-com, there has to be a love interest. And they don't always have to be of the opposite gender to the central character. In this case, our hero is Evan. If I'm being completely honest, we don't get to know loads about him. He's someone introduced just under halfway through the book and they share a moment. Their eyes meet and the rest of the world vanishes. Evan is more than just a pretty face though, and Fran gets to discover this. But things go no further, and their evening together is beautiful. He is someone who has been perceived to be a person he no longer is. But he doesn't let that get him down. There is this one moment in the book where he talks about puzzles and how life and every moment in it could be seen as a puzzle with missing pieces. Well, you'll have to read it to find out how wonderfully it comes across, but it really made me sit back and think for a few moments. As with every book, there are other characters in it that have a role to play, though some are more peripheral than others. There's Jess, Fran's best friend and one-time boss, Sarah another of Juliet's team and the woman who interviews Fran and initially seems to be a little superhuman, incredibly organised, very sorted and forthright in her manner with everyone, but she turns out to be anything but. Rachel, who could be said to be the fairy godmother of the piece. Lenny, the ship's steward on the songbird who is too handsome for his own good and the various guests at the crystal ball that Fran encounters when she is mingling with the rich and famous. Every single character in this was written in such a way that you either could identify with them or you didn't like them. I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but it helped me to enjoy the book even more. 
Fran was a likeable main character. She made mistakes, she admitted to them and she took responsibility for her life, even when it wasn't going exactly how she wanted. Traits to be admired and identified with by many. Before I go into what I thought about the book in more detail, it's it's only been out a while, but with over 1,300 ratings on Goodreads, I'm not the first person to read it. So what did other reviewers think? Renee Reads said, Magical, humorous and perfectly enchanting. On a night like this is the Cinderella retelling you didn't know you needed. Full of laughs and friendships that will last a lifetime, Lindsay Kelk has written an adorable must-read holiday romance. While Claire Bear said she was hooked from page one, Lindsay Kelk has the ability to captivate you, transport you from your surroundings and immerse you fully into the lives she creates on paper. Love the new characters and will be impatiently awaiting Fran's next adventure. Well done on another bestseller. Of course, not everyone was raving about the book. Reviews have to be balanced, of course. Not every book written will appeal to everyone, and this was no different. I know that I have personally read a fair few books that everyone else loved, and they just didn't warm the cockles of my heart as they had for other people. Kimberly gave it two stars and said, I was really interested in reading this book. The description was interesting. I love a down-on-her-luck heroine, but halfway through reading, it was kind of dragging. My biggest turn-off was the political insinuations. Not really a fan of modern-day people and politics incorporated into works of fiction. It makes it seem as though it's pandering to a certain audience. The main character was dry and the love interest takes half of the book to appear. Unfortunately, not a fresh or captivating story. Horses for courses with every single book, as with pretty much anything, if I'm being honest. With this book, it was harder to find the negative reviews, so it was great to see that I wasn't alone in my opinion, as in the positive one, not the last review that I read. Did I like the book? Yes, I personally think that it was well written. It's the sort of book to pick up and read when you want a hug. It's a little bit of fairy tale with a happy ending. However, it's not so sweet that your teeth are aching because everything is too perfect or too amazing. The fact that Fran didn't just jump into the hero's arms and scream, take me, take me now, gave her more credibility and made her more likeable as a character. I don't think I'd have liked her the same if she'd immediately done that and cheated on her fiancé, even though they were on the outs at that particular moment. I can honestly say that I loved everything, including the ending. And that's not something I can say about every single book I read. There's usually something to pick at, which inevitably makes that much bigger. With this book, I was sad that it ended and immediately had to pick up something new so that I could fill the hole that a finished book leaves in my soul. Yes, a bit dramatic, but actually quite true, though I am struggling with my current read. Will I read more by Lindsay Kelk? Having never read anything by this author before, I was not sure what to expect, but it seems as though I have been missing out. 
If the other 16 contemporary romance books on her list are anything like this one, then I need to pick them up and add them to my collection. Pretty sharpish. I already have her 2018 release, One in a Million on my Kindle, to read at a later date. I may need a palate cleanser after my current read, so that later date may be sooner than presently anticipated. Who knows? I am looking forward to reading it as the premise is interesting and if on a night like this is anything to go by, then I will not be disappointed. At all. If you like this, then you'll love on a night like this. Wow, that was two This is in a very short period of time. I realised that so often when talking about books, I'd say, read this, but would rarely say, read this if you liked that. So that's going to change right now. Lindsay Kelk is a contemporary romance author, though she has written three children's books, and there are a lot of those. However, she's a contemporary romance author who writes in the English style. And yes, there is a difference between English contemporary romance and American, though I'm not quite sure how to define it. Anyway, if you read and love Johnny Be Good or One Perfect Summer by Paige Toon, or You and Me Always by Jill Mansell, then you won't be guided too far wrong if you decide to pick up this book. I give it two enthusiastic thumbs up because I could happily pick it up and read it again without telling myself I should be reading something new. In fact, the ones I've recommended are about to do for a reread too. One of them I read last year and the other one is due for a reread this year as part of the paid tune read along. So I will get around to it eventually. Before I move on to other topics such as my Goodreads list, I have to talk about the cover of this book. Quite often the cover of books in this particular genre are rather one-dimensional all one colour or covered in flowers. Yes, I see you old library editions of books with stories that really deserve far better designs. The cover of this book, specifically the UK release, is beautiful. It has a fairy tale, almost Cinderella theme. It's a gorgeous starlit night sky surrounding a girl in a shimmering blue evening gown. The cover says everything while revealing nothing, but it would make a great addition to your bookcase. I sort of wish I'd purchased the hardback because the cover is lovely. In the US, the cover hints even more at the Cinderella connection, with the Kindle and paperback editions showing the Prince Charming chasing down his missing Cinderella. Though, if I am honest, I prefer the UK cover as it has more of a dreamlike quality to it. Things on Goodreads have only just started for the year, but I set myself a challenge to read 50 books before the start of 2023, which sounds really weird when we've literally only just started 2022. As I will be talking about a new book at least once per week, that should not be a challenge I struggle with. Though if my current read is anything to go by, there may be a few pinch points. However, the second challenge I have set myself is the same as last year, to try and read as many different genres and new authors as I can without neglecting the authors I already love. 
This month, when it comes to new releases from the writers I read regularly, it's actually really quiet. The latest book from Jill Mansell, Should I Tell You, comes out on the 20th of January, which is next week as I record this. And though I pre-ordered my Kindle copy last March, I am now contemplating switching to the hardback with the excuse that I already have plans to purchase a new bookcase in the first quarter of this year. In fact, I picked it out last night. When it comes to new book releases, the first month of the year tends to be rather quiet and I will often pick up books that came out in the latter part of the year before as my January reads. So if you're looking for a contemporary romance and here I am sticking to that particular genre for this week, it will change in coming weeks as I talk about other ones, as that is what I have been talking about then it's worth perusing the shelves in your local library or bookstore for any of the following and so many more. The Party Crasher by Sophie Kinsella, Walking on Sunshine by Giovanna Fletcher, Freckles, which has a really cute cover by Cecilia Ahern, or The Love Hypothesis by Ali Hazelwood. How are things in the coffee household this week? The first week back at work after any kind of time off is an interesting one. There's the first day when you're readjusting to your old schedule and going through the overflowing inbox to answer all the emails that you may have missed while off. And of course, on the second day, you're in meetings where most of the time is spent catching up and then talking about so much stuff that on the third day you realise you have deadlines coming up you may struggle to meet. All of the above is made even harder if your first week back is less than the full five days, as everyone's was given the fact that the first Monday of 2022 was a bank holiday. Am I saying that I wish I had worked on Monday? Good grief, no. I am not saying that at all. Seriously, I'm not. What I am saying is that it makes things a little bit more frantic, especially when there are deadlines all over the month, as there are for me. I know that I talked a lot about how draining and at the same time wonderful Christmas week happened to be. So this week I am not going to be revisiting that. Instead, I'm going to be talking about the knock-on effects for an introvert of spending a lot of time with people in general. I'm not going to moan or whine because it was great being at the centre of everything, though I could have done without the yelling and the arguments that I tend to normally stay about 20 miles away from when I don't spend time with their family. As anyone who is an introvert will tell you, I don't hate spending time with people. I love company just as much as anyone else does, but I prefer to be on the edge of things far more. As a child, I was the one with only a few friends. Occasionally, as I grew up, I would have a larger group of friends. In fact, during the latter part of my teens and the early part of my 20s, I was part of a group of around 15, maybe 20 people who regularly went to various pubs and clubs in my hometown. Every Friday and Saturday night had the same routine. And for a long time, this was something I felt comfortable with. And then something went wrong and I crawled back under my shell where I felt safe and happy and could lick my wounds. 
Of course, one month became a year, which became a few more, and I started to realise that while part of me missed the social aspect, the Friday night drinks and the clubbing, the rest of me was a little bit relieved that I no longer had to quickly think of things to say and then stand in dread as I waited for a response, hoping that they didn't think I was some kind of moron. Not going to lie, I spent most of my clubbing years wishing that I could do the small talk without overthinking it, that I could converse with people about nothing in particular and enjoy it. For years, I would legitimately spend hours before I went out looking through TV pages and reading episode summaries of shows that had already been on so that I could have a conversation about things I knew interested them but I struggled to find any passion for. And this was in the time before the internet was accessible to everyone. My friends weren't interested in talking about books and the news when we went out. So I always felt the need to have a bit of knowledge about things they liked. I swear to this day that this is the reason why I can remember insignificant details about programmes I've never watched and actors that I don't have any interest in. Hey, it actually taught me an interesting and important lesson even if it's one I no longer practice very often. What exactly am I trying to say here? You may well be asking and I don't blame you. I've been babbling for far too long. I guess it's that all too often the nature of the introvert is underestimated. Yes, a lot of us will only ever want our own company to be isolated and completely alone forever. But there are some of us who like being with people. Sometimes. The ones who like the occasional night out when it's not too noisy, who enjoy the family meal or the Sunday afternoon beverage with a friend in a local coffee shop for a catch-up. I'm one of those, though only when I can push myself to get on a crowded bus. I'm going to take it one step at a time, but at some point I need to get back on the proverbial horse and face my fears. Is that my goal for this year? Maybe. Who knows what the next 12 months may bring? Hopefully a lot of positive things. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs and on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Or you can check out my website, notbeforecoffee.co.uk. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I really haven't had enough yet. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.